Welcome to the BizWiz Podcast. I am Donna Garari, and in this podcast, I'll be joined by a team of researchers to explore two key questions. What are the visual challenges blind people encounter in their daily lives? And what are the technological advancements helping blind people to live more independently? We'll host conversations with people who are blind to learn about accessibility barriers they encounter, as well as with industry developers and researchers to learn how they are shaping the present and future of visual interpretation technology. If you would like transcripts and other related content, you can learn more at bizwiz.org. Check out the show notes for a link. And welcome to the third panel discussion of the BizWiz workshop, everyone. Uh, my name is Daniela Massacetti, and I'm a machine learning researcher at Microsoft Research in Cambridge in the UK. And uh, today I have the pleasure of welcoming three other fantastic computer vision and machine learning researchers to the stage. So we have Marcus Rohrbach, uh, Andrew Howard, and James Coughlin. Now, there are, I think we all know that there are no shortage of ways in which computer vision technologies can really support and empower the blind and low vision community. And so I'm really excited to have all three of you here today uh, so that we can start to dig into the cutting edge research that's happening in the space. What are the key challenges that we're facing? And also looking forward, you know, what, what does the future hold in this space? But before we dive in, I, I wanted to share a little bit more about, uh, about each of you uh, for our audience. So uh, first, starting with uh, Marcus. Marcus is a research scientist at Meta AI Research with a PhD from the Max Planck Institute of Informatics. Uh, Marcus is most well known for his work at the intersection of computer vision and natural language processing. And over his career, he has driven key progress in visual question answering, language grounding, and generating descriptions about images and videos, in particular movies. Um, all of which are, are really highly relevant areas for the blind and low vision community. In fact, I myself have done a bit of work as well at this intersection of computer vision uh, and NLP. And I think each of these fields alone have, uh, you know, many open research challenges. And so when we kind of bring them together, we get even more complex questions that arise. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to what progress Marcus can share with us on, on this front. Our second guest is uh, Andrew Howard. So Andrew is a senior staff software engineer at Google Research uh, with a PhD in computer science from Columbia University. Uh, Andrew is most well known for his work in mobile-friendly deep learning models. So starting with MobileNet, then MobileNet V2, then MobileNet V3, and also MNASNets, his work really has been broadly adopted in deep learning packages like PyTorch and TensorFlow, as, uh, as well as across a host of mobile phone platforms and, and apps. And I think many of us who work in computer vision research do have the intent of, you know, deploying our models in the real world. And I think in many cases, a crucial part of that is obviously getting them to work on resource constrained devices like mobile phones. So I'm really excited to hear more from Andrew on the latest and greatest in uh, deep learning on the edge. And then finally, I'd like to welcome James. Uh, James Coughlin is a senior scientist at the Smith Kettlewell Eye Re Research Institute with a PhD in physics from Harvard University. Uh, James has been at Smith Kettlewell since 1998 and over this time has developed a really wide array of impactful technologies for the blind and low vision community. Some of these include guidance systems at traffic intersections, hazard detection for blind wheelchair users, wayfinding using machine readable signage, interactive 3D maps and object recognition tools. 
He has also driven fundamental research in computer vision, particularly graphical models and belief propagation for visual search and semantic segmentation. And I think as a person who really crosses, you know, the spectrum from fundamental to applied research, um, I think James will be able to offer a lot of useful insights in the learnings he's made along the way. So, yeah, welcome all. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you with us. And uh, I think now that the introductions are out of the way, we can, we can really dive into to the panel. So to kick us off and for the sake of the audience, I think it would be good if each of you could share uh, a little bit more about your current line of work, how you got into it as a computer vision researcher, and uh, a little bit about the problems that you're working on at the moment. Um, so how's about we, we start with Marcus? Hey, yeah, thank you. Thank you for the introduction. Uh, welcome, everyone. Yeah, I've been um, working basically on the detection of vision and language um, since my, my master's thesis, um, and then continued working on, on different aspects of it. And most recently, we've been looking into, on the one hand, how to scale models so they can, like multi-model models, so they can do multiple tasks, um, which I think is, is also useful in any applications, and learn from sort of unsupervised or self-supervised data. Um, that allows to sort of increase the amount of data we can learn from significantly. So that's sort of one line of research, and then another line which I sort of very recently just started this year. It's looking into the reliability of of models, and with that specifically, I mean, if a model answers, for example, a question in in a, in a visual question answering system, sort of giving an answer. Um, most systems right now just focus on predicting the most likely answer, but it might be not um, a good idea for, for some use cases, such as assisting a user or assisting especially a user with visual impairments, because the system might be wrong and the model doesn't really have a good idea when it's wrong and when it's right. So we have been looking into how good are models in predicting if they are right, and then they can answer the question and predicting when they're wrong, or they can alternatively abstain, but just say, okay, I can't, I can't answer, answer this mm -hmm. question. I actually found, at least for state-of-the-art visual question answering models, that models are basically very bad at that. And we've been um, starting looking into how to improve that. Um, and we have, we have sort of uh, initial work on that, but we're continuing working into how to really get that uh, off the ground. Yeah, that, that sounds fantastic. And yeah, when we think about, you know, on your last topic of reliability, that's so important for people who are blind or low vision because of the often safety critical scenarios in which, you know, they may be asking a question about a, a visual scene in front of them. So yeah, I think those are really important directions. Thanks. Um, Andrew, how, how about you? I know you're working very much at, on the edge, as they like to call it. So um, yeah, excited to hear a bit more about that. Yeah, great. Uh, thanks for the introduction and, and also the invite to speak. You know, I think this is a great topic. Well, let's start from the beginning. Uh, how did I get involved in machine learning? Uh, you know, I took some classes in undergraduate and it was very clear that was the exciting place to be. Uh, this was, you know, so then I did my PhD uh, at Columbia in machine learning, and this was kind of before deep nets were a big thing. Then as I got in industry and kind of deep nets started to show themselves, it was kind of really clear, like, hey, we got to, you know, go tackle this problem here. You know, deep nets are, are the future. So I kind of independently worked for a little bit and did well in, say, the ImageNet challenges uh, with maybe an eye towards a startup. But then uh, a nice opportunity at Google came. And so then I joined Google. 
And they had a very exciting problem. How do we do this efficiently, uh, you know, on device? And so that was kind of how MobileNet was born. And basically, my team at Google is a kind of an applied research team where I would say 50% of our work is more about how do we uh, move the field forward uh, on the research side. But it's always targeted at, you know, how do we solve a problem that's kind of useful for Google products and the industry in general? Uh, so kind of 50-50 between doing actual uh, work that will go into the world and academic work. And then the two kind of inform each other. So one of the kind of challenges that's happened is, you know, in the beginning, uh, everyone kind of had a CPU on mobile devices. And, you know, we could solve that well on there. And it's kind of a combination of how do we start from first principles, uh, neural nets, how do we strip them down to the bare minimum and kind of make sure they map well to both the hardware and software available. Um, usually targeting Android ecosystem. We're a little more focused on that. Now, as phones have gotten more mature, there's more and more kind of custom hardware. So some of the things that work well on CPU don't necessarily map well to running well on, say, uh, accelerators. So one of the themes we've been investigating recently is how do we make kind of more universal models, models that uh, out of the box are just going to kind of work well on, on any hardware you want to deploy them. Again, focusing more kind of on the Android ecosystem. And that's a combination of research topics around, you know, again, what are the useful and efficient building blocks for a neural net, but then also a more applied aspect of, you know, do the benchmarking, tune the model specific to the benchmarks on, on, on the hardware. And then what's kind of nice is, you know, we get to publish that, we get to release open source models, but then we can also feed it in, say, Google products and kind of, uh, help a, a large number of people in the world. So that's kind of one theme, these universal models of, of efficiency that we're working on. Uh, you know, I guess we have some other projects around how might we do more of a conditional computation since, you know, not every vision task is uh, as challenging. So simple things can be solved with less computation, more complicated things with, with more and possibly more specialized. So that's kind of a, another theme. But yeah, in general, my work's basically around efficiency. How, how do we get kind of the highest accuracy for the least amount of cost? Nice. Yeah, that's a great overview. And I think, um, yeah, if we kind of think about, I guess, the great diversity of devices, you know, the uh, heterogeneity of all the different devices that we use in our daily lives, having kind of universal ways of making, uh, you know, AI models on them work more efficiently is a really important direction, I think, going forwards. Thanks very much for sharing. Um, James, I'd love to hear from you. Thanks a lot. And yeah, thanks also for inviting me to this panel. It's a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I, I'll say a little bit about my background. Um, you know, I was sort of squarely in computer vision, um, doing my PhD thesis on things like deformable templates, stuff that preceded the, uh, the deep learning, machine learning revolution. Um, I always with an interest in geometry and in my postdoc, I did this Manhattan world work. And back then the interest was mostly theoretical. My, my advisor was thinking, um, about possible applications for blindness. I think he was envisioning, you know, a blind person navigating in an urban environment. A lot of urban environments, um, have XYZ dominant structures. How might we interpret the edges? And, and that's, that's how, you know, my answer to him was, was the, Bayes net behind um, Manhattan world. And over time, um, I realized that the whole world of accessibility for people with visual impairments um, 
was just a great application for computer vision. And early on, I sort of faced a choice between do I want to target people who are who identify as blind or people who are low vision? And the dividing line is largely what kind of interface do people want? If you are blind, you're going to want audio or tactile interfaces. If you're low vision, you're going to want you know something zoomed in, enhanced video, um, that kind of thing. And I thought, well, low vision people already have a number of tools at their disposal, um, but if I could do anything even small with computer vision, I could perhaps give information to a blind person that they would have no other means of obtaining. So I sort of focused mostly on on blindness. And a lot of the themes over the years have been sort of geometric things that, you know, where some sort of geometry is required, like an early project was on navigation at traffic intersections and understanding where a person is with respect to crosswalk stripes on, on the ground. And um, so for, you know, just to say my career has kind of gone from the theoretical side to to more applied angles. And by the time I was doing, um, you know, a Bayesian barcode reader, of course, I've always loved Bayesian reason- reasoning. And this has probably begun in 2008 or so. Um, but I was also very aware that at that time, there was no way for a blind person to, let's say, distinguish between two cans on their shelf. One could be tomato soup, the other could be, you know, lentil soup, very different products. How do we read a barcode? noisy images, all that kind of thing. And I began, you know, in those days, the N95 was just powerful enough that you could actually port um, some algorithms to it and began doing user studies and realizing that the real work is to identify the overlap between, you know, uh, what does a blind person need and, you know, where might methods from computer vision actually be practical in helping to meet that need. And it's, it's always a big challenge to to, to find that overlap. And so more recently, I've been focusing on two main projects. One is indoor navigation, or really, you know, navigating in any GPS-denied environment, and trying to focus on a lightweight approach um, that, you know, is, is um, relying on a small amount of information. So perhaps the, the best way to solve that problem, if you just want good localization performance, would be something where you scan you know the entire environment and you make a 3d model and and do localization based on that but something which is more lightweight that is more likely to scale and doesn't require connectivity perhaps um, with sensitivity to privacy perhaps there's a building that you want to have access to but maybe the manager doesn't want you scanning every portion of the building but they can hand you a two-dimensional floor plan so that's um, one of the projects I'm working on right now and a big theme running through all of this, um, which is maybe a little bit, you know, related to this this whole panel, is that an image taken by a blind person is very often, you know, not going to be the image that you, as a computer vision person, hopes it would be. Um, aiming a camera is a huge theme in my work, and so, you know, as a, you know, as a researcher making an application intended for a blind person, I don't want to assume a blind person can know where to aim. So I'm giving sort of generic feedback like hold the camera forward, um, don't tilt it down, don't tilt it up, try to acquire usable images in, in that fashion. And another project that I'm I'm working on is what we call Cameo, um, camera input output. And this was a project suggested to me some years ago by a blind person who said, oh, you know, James, can't you use computer vision to give feedback on, let's say, a three-dimensional object like a three-dimensional scale map? Um, or, or two-dimensional tactile map. And the idea being that you really want to sort of close the loop. A person who doesn't have a lot of vision is going to feel comfortable exploring something tactilely, 
But wouldn't it be great to have audio labels um, to orient the person to, you know, you're touching a relief map. Well, this is, you know, one mountain peak. This is another feature on the map. So that's that's another um, project I'm working on. And again, I'm thinking a lot about um, very practical um, issues like, okay, uh, this is currently in the form of an app. And the, the prospect of having a blind person aim a camera fairly precisely at a target object is, is kind of a challenge. And so these are, these are important things that, important considerations that come up. And the general theme of these projects is just, you know, promoting accessibility um, whenever possible. And so while the first rung of the ladder is perhaps to have someone else, you know, annotate an object so that it's then accessible to a blind person, the, the next rung above that is to make an authoring system that is completely accessible. So a blind person can um, author it themselves if they want. So that's that's an overview of where I came from and and what I'm doing. So thank you. Yeah, fantastic. Um, yeah, you brought up a lot of interesting questions um, uh, and a lot of interesting areas. I think, in particular, for accessible tech. I mean, just the going going to one of uh, one of the points you made around helping a person who is blind aim a camera. I mean, I think the kinds of images that we see in the real world taken by people who are blind are really quite different from the images we see in these image, you know, computer vision benchmark data sets. And uh, a big challenge there is, I think, making sure that we, you know, we, we recognize that mismatch and, and are really building systems that work for the real world, not on these, uh, not only on these uh, benchmark data sets. Fantastic. So that was, uh, I think, a very nice uh, starting point for our um, discussion. Next, I'd like us to, to, to I'd like to hear from each of our um, speakers a little bit in more technical detail around the kinds of methods um, that they're using to tackle these problems that they've mentioned or these areas, and in particular, you know, the kinds of errors or limitations that um, that you encounter with the methods that you use. Um, so perhaps we can start. Uh, we'll shuffle the order a little bit. So perhaps we can start with Andrew. Yeah, if we kind of look at these mobile uh, deep learning networks, yeah, how, how do they work? What kind of makes them so mobile friendly? You know, in what scenarios are they failing? Uh, yeah, it would be great to hear a little bit more. Our audience, I think, would enjoy to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, all right. Um, that's definitely an interesting question for this area. In some ways, um, neural nets, basically, there's a trade-off between accuracy and resource usage. And, you know, that could be resource usage, which is, you know, latency or power could be size, you know, generally there's a log linear relationship between these things. And whenever you're able to kind of find an improvement uh, that is, uh, you know, more efficient, you can also find a more accurate one. So you, you basically you have a curve, uh, you know, the Pareto optimal curve. And um, as you make an advance, the Pareto optimal curve kind of moves out further. So how, how does one move the Pareto, Pareto optimal curve out? You know, some of it is, you know, go into kind of first principles on how one might design an efficient network. And so how did we get to kind of mobile nets? Uh, it kind of came from the insight that, uh, and, you know, aspects of this were in the literature as I was developing it, that you could factorize networks into something responsible for essentially mixing the pixels and something responsible for mixing the channels. Hopefully not being too technical here. And by doing that, you actually get a, a lot of uh, improved, improvement at speed. And one of the nice aspects is the 
part that mixes the pixels are essentially one-by-one one convolution, convolutions, which are implemented as matrix multiplies. Now, matrix multiplies have been hyper-optimized in every format out there. Uh, you know, that's like well understood, well worked on. So it's kind of moved most of the computation um, from a convolutional operator into a matrix multiply, which is uh, simpler to implement. And in fact, um, you know, transformers, which are very popular for uh, NLP and now revision, you know, they use uh, a lot of these things as well, you know, one by one uh, multiplications. So we got essentially a nice advance by factorizing less total flops and then flops that map better to the hardware and the software. So that was kind of a nice win. And, you know, those are the pieces that are typically getting used pretty broadly now. The small caveat is we still had to mix the pixels, and that's uh, where we call these kind of depth-separable filters. And that was kind of the challenge to make sure there was a good implementation of that broadly across the ecosystem, because that was a more kind of unique operator. So this goes more over to the general problem that we're having as we're trying to make advances in efficiency. So how do we measure advances in efficiency? So again, we could measure, are we more accurate at the same number of flops? But sometimes those flops won't actually map well to an implementation of the hardware and the software. So um, that may be interesting for academia, but for actually you know, shipping something and making an impact uh, on, on the world today, uh, it may not be the right solution. Might be the right solution in the future when you get good support. So this kind of iterative process of thinking about what are the pieces that will give kind of the best neural nets in the most stripped down version that then also map to the hardware and the software is kind of how we dig in. And so what are the tools that we use? Some of it is just first principles and thought experiments, followed by uh, iteratively running experiments to verify that. Uh, some of that is actual benchmarking. Uh, some of that is then also using AutoML to kind of tune the pieces that we find to be useful to enter their kind of optimal shape. So this is kind of the research search project as we try to create kind of best practices to do efficient networks. When I then engage with, say, a product team or something more applied, usually that's a little more linear. It's like, you know, here's how well we can do now based on your requirements for the project and, you know, kind of follow the best practices on, on how to do that. But then if there's some gap between what, uh, say, a product needs and kind of uh, what we're able to deliver, that's another research opportunity, you know. And so being able to take kind of potential product needs and map it back into the research community and then kind of do it as a more general research project, put it out in the literature and hopefully inspire more people to look at those projects, uh, that's been a kind of a really nice cycle. So maybe I can pause there. Yeah, nice. And I think that uh, that really is the, um, uh, what would you call it? Not the perk, but the real nice aspect, I think, of working on the spectrum of fundamental to applied research, because you do get that nice loop where you're doing research, not for the, just the pure sake of research, but actually informed by kind of the real world needs, all the things that product teams want. So that's, I think, really a nice aspect. And I think James touched on that as well. Yeah, great, great uh, insights into the mobile nets. 
I guess just a question from my own uh, curiosity, you know, as we see these mobile phone cameras, you know, higher and higher res, uh, you know, we, you know, they have these enormous images coming through now. Um, do you think the mobile nets are able to kind of make the most of those large images or are we still in the space where we're kind of mapping these down to, you know, smaller images, which, uh, uh, you know, which, which will then work better and faster? So, yeah, I don't know. Is there a, a trade-off or a, a tipping point where, uh, you know, image size, what's the image size that, that, you know, current most efficient models work with on a mobile phone? All right. Uh, that's a very interesting question. All right. So in general, I would say it's problem specific as to kind of what is the sweet spot for resolution mm -hmm. uh, versus accuracy. So, you know, we use kind of say ImageNet or, you know, Coco as kind of our, our uh, lab rat, if you will, you know, but that doesn't 100% map to real world problems. It correlates and making progress there does tend to translate. But the idea of resolution for, say, uh, an ImageNet problem, um, resolution is less useful there. Mm -hmm. However, things in computational photography uh, or things what, you know, maybe if you want to do background blurring for one of these meetings, you know, you got to have your edges really kind of clean. Um, and so then higher resolution really benefits there. So these kind of mobile models, um, and, you know, they can be really scaled up as much compute as you have. So it's in some ways, um, it's compute bound. And so as we get more and more accelerators, uh, you can run on higher resolution. But then the gotcha is the accelerators are now a little bit memory bound. And then more pixels mean more memory. So some of it is like, when will the hardware be where you need it? But then what value do the extra pixels bring or kind of dependent on the actual problem. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Um, yeah, I can totally imagine that different applications have kind of different uh, resolution needs, let's say, or as you say, what is the value add that comes from those extra pixels relative to how much compute you're spending to process them? Great. Um, uh, Marcus, so yeah, um, you're working very much at this multimodal intersection and, um, you know, there's been a lot of recent progress in this space with, I think, models like Clip and Dali. And so, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the kinds of models that you're using at this intersection. You know, how do they combine vision and language and, and where are they failing? What are the kinds of things they're not working for just yet? Yeah, so, so I mean, we are working also on very similar technology using transformers, as also mentioned by Andrew. And um, one thing we have been trying to solve is not just solving one single problem with a single model, but trying to have multiple problems which a single model can solve. So vision-only problems, language-only problems, and multi-model problems. And and I think the, the challenge is especially to, to transfer it to tasks which are especially um, small with respect to the data. So, for example, if if you think about the VisVis data set, which which this workshop is also hosting, um, it is comparatively small. So it's actually a challenge to to transfer any models um, on on this on this kind of task for assisting visually impaired users. So I think this is sort of a major challenge to to understand how can we transfer from a large supervised training data. Or even larger um, unsupervised data. How can we transfer um, knowledge and data? Given that the questions are different, images are different. So both the language and the visual side are basically changing, and we have to then also sort of understand how the model has to change. And that 
similarly to what I mentioned earlier, then that's the question is if models operate maybe somewhat reliable on, on, on a large known set, how do they operate on this sort of new smaller set and, and how can we solve, solve that problem? And, and, and yeah, in, in our research, it's a largely unsolved problem. So there's lots of work ahead. Mm -hmm. And that will be also critical, I think, before one can sort of widely apply that and, and give that to, to users, basically. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think the point you're making around, um, you know, I think it touches on, on what James was saying uh, around really, you know, this difference between perhaps this large supervised data set that we have and really thinking about the ways in which that data may differ from the kinds of real world data that a person who is blind will collect, uh, for which we might only have a, a you know a very small subset. And so I think that is a very relevant challenge a very relevant cha challenge that uh, we face in getting computer vision research models kind of working in that real world because of that mismatch. So I think that links nicely with what James mentioned earlier. Um, yeah, James, I, uh, I would love to hear a little bit more about the kinds of methods that uh, have gone into the tech that, that you've built recently and sort of what the, you know, the limitations or errors you've encountered with these methods are. Sure. Yeah, for the <clears throat> indoor navigation project, um, you know, it's kind of a classical approach where we're taking with, um, you know, recognition of visual landmarks with, with YOLO, um, particle filtering, um, and something which I never appreciated, you know, maybe five years ago, I wasn't aware how much, how powerful this was going to be, but visual inertial odometry, which of course is standard on any smartphone now, which is a, a very useful uh, input to have to your particle filter. And, you know, with that, we have a, a two-dimensional floor plan. So the the components are, you know, fairly, fairly well understood. There, you know, there are a lot of challenges. Some of them are expected, some are unexpected. I mean, one of the expected challenges is that, um, you know, I mean, recognizing visual landmarks that sometimes it, it, you may have expectations about what kind of error rate you're going to get, but you know, you may not attain that low an error rate right away. There's a challenge that's very pragmatic, um, but we're developing on iOS for our experiments, um, partly because a lot of blind people prefer um, iOS over Android. That's, that's historical. It's changing slowly. Because iOS, I think, was accessible very early on, even before Android. Android was accessible with, um, you know, uh, screen readers and so forth. Um, and developing on a smartphone platform, it's a bit of a hassle. I, th I think of, um, I, I think of the the computer as kind of the, the the first world for programming. You know, you have your all the programming tools you like. You can visualize things very nicely, three D plots. You can mouse around. Beautiful. But then, when it comes time to port to the phone, you know it's 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 difficult. So on the lap on the on the laptop or desktop, maybe you've had the luxury of using Python. And nothing against Swift, but you know Swift has to interface with um, C and suddenly you have a few different versions of the code um, uh, lying around. And of course, you can visualize things on the fly on a phone, but that's the the, the visual real estate is very small. So it's 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 kind of a challenge, sort of iterating um, between these different forms of, of the code. And then just at a very high level, um, the very notion that, oh, a blind person will will use their camera on their smartphone to navigate. I mean, that's that's not a given. That's that's kind of an assumption that I made, knowing it was a questionable assumption. And what I found talking to some some blind people, some blind people say, 
I have no problem holding the phone while I'm walking. I'm always texting while I'm walking, or I'm always you know, using Google Maps while I'm walking. No big deal. For other people, though, it might be just um, you know, a reason they would never adopt such an approach, because maybe you have one hand already holding the guide dog harness or the cane or something. Maybe you have groceries in another hand. Oh, you want to hold this in another, another hand? That's, that's maybe not going to work out. And so it's kind of made me more and more impatient to see um, wearable cameras become more widespread than they are and, and, you know, in a way that would be perhaps integrated nicely with, with the user's phone. And then another sort of high level thing is, you know, even if my algorithms are working perfectly, localization is working really well. That's great. There's, there's a big question about how do you want to convey that information to a blind person? So I think a lot of experience that we've had um, in the field of accessibility over the years has been directed at sort of GPS-enabled um, navigation, which is great. Typically, you're getting you know 10 meters accuracy, maybe five meters, even a little bit better nowadays in urban settings. Um, but you know, it's not pinpointing you. But in an indoor setting, you might actually want to tell the person, oh, you want to enter this door, not the door to its right. And even though they're separated by only a meter, you know, they're very different destinations. Um, so whereas before you could in a GPS sort of domain, you could give broad instructions. How do you give more detailed instructions to a blind person? And, you know, again, the system may know everything precisely geometrically speaking, but you don't want to burden the user with overly detailed instructions. And of course, this is often in audio form and a person is going to have to listen for ambient sounds. That's a very important thing for safety. And, you know, there are some conceptual tools that are very helpful. If you're in a corridor environment, it makes total sense to say, proceed down the corridor. And there's this technique that's used that's very common called shorelining. For instance, if you have a cane, you will, you know, sweep the cane back and forth while you're walking and the cane will kind of keep help you keep track of, oh, the wall is right there on your left and you know you're walking pretty straight. And then the next concept could be, oh, there's a junction, turn left at the junction. Okay, the cane can help you figure that out. But now if you're in an airport or some other wide open space, you know, what directions do you give? You don't want to burden the user with, you know, oh, adjust your path by 2.5 degrees and, you know, that kind of thing. There, So it's very unclear, I think, what the optimal user interface should be. And of course, different participants in your experiments will have different preferences or circumstances may dictate that, hey, I don't need details this time or yes, I do want all the details. So so that's that's just some examples for, for one project. The other project, the other main project I'm doing on audio labeling so the, the approach I'm taking, um, for the time being at least, is to do this as a three-dimensional thing. You have an object, um, you know, like a, a tactile map or something, and the camera is estimating the pose of that, six degrees of pose. And then you have something like a stylus or a, you know, or, or the, the person's fingertip, and you want to understand, well, where is the fingertip or stylus pointing in 3D, and how does that relate to the 3D object? So it's a very basic geometry. But I, I, I want to think in terms of making um, software that works on as many cases as possible. And so I, I'm, I'm hoping for the day when pose estimation is just working really beautifully. But for instance, here's an object, you know, a daily object, my, my, my mug has very few visual features. And, you know, I, I don't know if there are a lot of pose estimation algorithms that would run on the, out of the box on something like that. And certainly, although 
for instance, iOS has ARKit, which which has a 3D scanning feature and will do pose estimates. It's it's looking for SIFT-like feature points, sort of you know old older technology. So what I've done in the meantime is to say, well, let's go very low tech and let's use markers, you know, um, Aruco markers, that kind of thing. And so because I I want sort of lowest common denominator, no matter how featureless your object is, I want to be able to sort of track the pose while I am simultaneously exploring, you know, more advanced approaches. So anyway, that's that's a, a technical detail for that project. And in terms of sort of the user experience and what skills are needed, again, um, like my current approach is assuming that the camera has a clear view of the entire object of interest. It's not that easy, you know, for a person who's blind to to make that happen. And I, I also want to point out that even people with normal vision, you know, you, you've, we've all had the experience of maybe taking a selfie and maybe the sun is blinding you. You can't see, you know, the display of what the camera is, is showing you too well. And it's a little bit, it's quite difficult actually. So I think sighted people, we all, we all know and pay lip service to the fact that aiming the camera is important and it's challenging, but I think we tend to forget the degree of our reliance on visual feedback to accomplish that aiming. Um, so Anyway, that's that's a, 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 a sort of a technical challenge that um, that comes up again and again on that project. Yeah, thanks, James. I think there are a lot of connection points to some of the work from uh, Andrew and Marcus. Uh, you mentioned, for example, you know, visual inertial odometry. I think this is kind of, you know, if we zoom out, it's really uh, taking the, the perspective that, you know, maybe building these systems, it's not just about the, the you know, the, the data stream that's coming from the camera, but really about how we can integrate all these other different modalities, whether it's natural language uh, inputs or outputs, whether it's, um, you know, kind of uh, the gyroscope or accelerometer, uh, you know, all of these additional pieces of information, which might help us kind of help the model ultimately deliver a more robust and reliable uh, output or response. So I think that's a nice connection point to some of Marcus's work. Uh, but then another point that you mentioned, I think, in one of your earlier answers around you know, it's not just about us sitting in as researchers, us sitting in our research worlds and, um, you know, imagining what the what the experience should be. It really is about kind of mapping that really testing them out, you know, testing out those assumptions, making sure that they're, um, you know, working for users, you know, conducting user studies. Uh, you mentioned that in your in your one of your previous answers. So I think that's really important. It's not just about sort of keeping separate, you know, keeping us as computer vision researchers separate from, um, you know, the actual end users of this technology. It's about bringing us uh, much closer to one another so that we make sure we're ultimately building technology that really serves the needs of the community. Great. So um, let's zoom out a little bit. And um, so I, I think, yeah, we've kind of got a nice base for, I think the audience will have now have quite a nice basis or understanding of, um, you know, kind of the work that you're doing, uh, the challenges, technical challenges that you're facing. But I think given that you're all, uh, you know, have worked in this, the computer vision research space for a long time, I think it would be interesting to kind of zoom out and hear a little bit more broadly about what you see as kind of the key turning points which the computer vision community has taken over the years or decades. Um, you know, kind of those pivotal moments which have shifted the community in, you know, key ways and have really enabled us to address some of the, the challenges that uh, end users or people who are blind uh, face. Um, so, yeah, maybe we can, uh, we can start with Marcus. Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe, and um, I think there's uh, maybe two things. On the one hand, 
the emergence of larger and larger data sets, especially in the vision and NLP community. But then second, obviously also the, especially in the multimodal setting, um, the, the start of deep learning, and especially for the, um, I think I guess it was for all the different machine learning communities, but also for the multimodal community, because it allowed to sort of really integrate visual and language signals, which was much more difficult before because in vision, there was completely different technologies than a language. And so maybe most recently, this actually has come even closer with the emergence of transformers, where it's not just sort of the same system, but it's actually the same model basically used for both vision and language um, signals. I think what we are now at is like, we are sort of really scaling to very, very large data sets and very, very large models. And it, there seems to be some some gains to be made, but um, I think the next question is sort of how can we even do without those large data sets? So how can we do without these super large data sets and super large models and still perform very good? And I, I think there's sort of um, lots of advances to be made in in the next next coming years on on, on sort of that side. And sort of the other side, I think we're, we're sort of a big major challenge, I think, is, is in, in, in privacy and um, safety of, of the systems. And then you can, I think that has, again, multiple dimensions. So it includes, for example, if you train on very large data, you don't really know what the system is trained with and how it might operate on certain points. You might not have seen it operate in certain dimension, but that might actually have seen this kind of object before in some far distance pre-training data and might suddenly be sure that it's something, but it's not, or it is. So, so it's, um, I think there's lots of challenges to, to understand what those models can do and what they can't do, especially in, a, in, in the safety critical situations, uh, if we want to deploy them for, for users where, which use them beyond playing with them. Yeah, definitely. Some some great points there. And uh, yeah, I agree. It's kind of nice to see models like Transformers really kind of bring together a lot of the work in, you know, different parts of the community and uh, almost serve as a universal model, <laughs> model to rule them all. I uh, think that's been quite a, a cool thing to see over the last year or so. James, uh, how about you? What have been sort of the key over your career, uh, the, kind of the key turning points in the computer vision community? Yeah, I mean, I, I think some of them are, are probably obvious, and, and I'll just say them really quickly. Um, you know, computer vision algorithms used to be things that that ran on desktops and laptops only, and the the smartphone revolution um, has been really incredible. And of course, you know, in the early days, we could eke some performance out of a Nokia N95, and then the iPhone came, and and all that. Um, and I think some of the importance is, you know, of course. It's it's amazing that you can run this on your phone. That's great. It's portable. It's mobile, but it's also been a real sea change in the way cameras are used. A camera used to be something that you you know maybe you kept charged for vacations or for special outings, whatever. Um, wasn't always by your side. Now a camera is a daily tool. I remember very early on doing some of this research. Um, just the, my mere presence, like holding a camera in, like in a store or something. I mean, the store owner would question me, what are you doing? And there was, you know, a note of concern. And, you know, fast forward to now when I, I would think, especially if you're, you know, a blind person, um, you know, you're holding your camera, you're scanning. I don't think people are going to suspect that you're up to no good. I mean, there, there, there's a 
an assumption that this is a, a tool that's really useful. And so now you have cameras that are not special tools, but they're everyday tools. And so you, you have all this different data than, than you used to. And of course, the old training data used to be very nicely composed images. And now you have these images that are, you know, uh, that, that are much more informal and a range of conditions limit their usability. So I think that's, that's really great. And, um, you know, also I think there was, I think there's an increasing um, sort of tolerance of the fact that we're asking machines to solve tasks and, and the tools we use, you know, algorithms, AI are imperfect and that's not necessarily a bad thing. So I think there's an expectation that if you, you know, you know, you, you point seeing AI at something usually works, but every so often it doesn't, it doesn't mean you throw it away. <laughs> I think there's, there's just more um, tolerance, especially maybe among the younger generation. Um, this, this technology is growing. It's not, it's not perfect. Um, and then just the other turning point, which is it's less big, but it's, it's big for me. And I think it's big for a lot of researchers and accessibility is, um, you know, the emergence of AR tools like AR kits and AR core AR kit came out in 2017, you know, the, just the, the amazing, you know, availability of visual inertial odometry, all this 3d geometry at your fingertips. It's, it's really incredible. Um, and I think. I think a lot. Anyway, I'll, I'll stop there for now. I may have more to say about that, but I think that's been an incredible thing because the it, it sort of it enables a sort of a spatial you know, reasoning, three D spatial reasoning that that was really not there before. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, many of your points link uh, quite nicely to to Andrew and uh, his work in kind of mobile focused uh, deep learning models. There's all this extra. Um, you know all this extra stuff that comes with uh, you know integrating other information from a from a mobile phone and um, yeah we we should have mobile phone well deep learning models that can work on these mobile phones in order to use all that info so um, yeah Andrew how how about you what are the what have been in kind of you know deep learning on the edge or I guess deep learning more generally what have been the um, kind of key turning points you've seen over the over the last decade. Yeah, uh, let me maybe just work on deep learning in general to start. Um, you know, both Marcus and James had uh, some very nice answers, uh, but you know, I'll just uh, very concretely say AlexNet. You know, that was just <laughs> the big turning point. It might sound obvious, but but what sure. was it? Right? It was proof of concept that feed-forward convolutional neural nets uh, could work uh, at high quality, and it brought together. Uh, again, the feed-forward convolutional net, larger-scale data, and uh, and compute, and having those three kind of uh, recipes together, kind of set the stage for for all of this. And uh, I guess one other small neglected part is uh, clever recipes on how to train it. Whether it's kind of you know some of this is details, but these details are important. <laughs> uh, whether it's kind of the distortions to kind of simulate large-scale data whether it's, you know, small innovations like Relu, like all these pieces all kind of came together in one package and said, hello world, you know, deep nets are, are the way. And so going forward, you know, the themes are around larger and larger models. Uh, so again, the, what we discussed, transformers and showing their kind of universality, uh, but they're very data hungry to have these kind of larger and larger, um, you know, accuracies. Uh, obviously, they're very compute hungry as well. So we haven't touched as much on the data side. Uh, data is kind of the lifeblood of all this stuff. Uh, so I think uh, some of the uh, new results on uh, you know self-supervised and semi-supervised is very important. 
Um, I think federated learning is very important. That's a way to kind of keep data private while still training joint models. And then, uh, you know, we touched a little bit on um, it's important what the models are being trained on in that, you know, you want fairness. And so maybe one thing to really, really anchor on here is test data is super important. You know, how do you know you're, you're doing a good job unless you have a really representative test set? And so, you know, uh, the VizWiz challenge is maybe one example of, you know, you have uh, data that's representative of the task you want to solve. Because while academic benchmarks are nice, when we actually want to deploy these things for real at scale and so that they work for everyone, you know, we need that North Star of like uh, evaluation data to make sure that uh, things work for real and, you know, then the fairness part that they work for everyone. Yeah, I think there's a there's a great point. And I yeah, I, I definitely agree on the AlexNet point. It really was the um, you know, just the sort of uh, coming together of so much uh so many things that then have really uh, spurred on or or initiated catalyzed kind of the, the last decade of research in computer vision. Um but yes, another great points as well. All right, so we're almost nearing the end of the panel. Um and I thought to end off, uh it would be Good to just get from each of you uh, sort of two sentences or two points around, you know, what does the next decade look like? What are the things that are going to be, you know, what is the next frontier? What is the next big thing? You know, just kind of two, you know, high level two points around uh, or two sentences around what, what do you think is um, is going to be the next big thing? So, so yeah, how's, how's why we start with you, James? Um, yeah, well, I mean, one thing that may not be on people's radar is augmented reality as something that's especially useful for blind people. And it can be done largely in the audio domain. We don't need to wait for affordable, comfortable headsets. Excellent, yeah, I think uh, there's been a lot of uh, growing momentum around AR, VR, and um, uh, a lot of exciting uh, links there to how we can improve accessible technology. Great point, uh, Andrew? Yeah, I think there's something around basically the ubiquity of all of these things. Um, you know, the tasks that deep learning can solve uh, are becoming just a component that you can plug in, you know, similar to the AR kit, AR core that, that you mentioned. And then what's on the kind of cutting edge is what are the new capabilities we kind of bring online as we scale the size of these like large language models, these large vision models, the multimodal models that Marcus is working on and others. Uh, so basically, what will those new capabilities be as things get very, very big? Yeah, nice. Agreed. Um, and wrapping up with Marcus, uh, what do you uh, what do you think is the next frontier, the next big thing? I would say probably the sort of the general assistant, sort of both sort of assisting visually impaired users, but also assisting all other users. Um, I think there will be right now, at least by personal experience, they're still a bit awkward to use most of the assistants. They have lots of flaws. I think we will probably get in maybe the next 10 years to stage where they're so good that they become more and more like the smartphone. Like maybe before a smartphone was there, nobody was saying, I mean, at least I personally wasn't thinking, how could that be useful? I think we might get to a stage in 10 years where like an assistant, a visual assistant for visually impaired users or general assistant for, for everyone might be so omnipresent eventually that we might not know how to live without it, similar how we don't know how to live without a smartphone, or lots of us don't. 
Yeah, great point. And I guess, yeah, that directly links to to your work at this intersection, because, of course, a, an assistant like that will need to have, you know, the ability to both visually reason, but also um, also also uh, lingually reason. So it's so a nice, uh, obvious uh, place for your, for your research, your current research. Great. Well, thank you uh, all very much. We've uh, sadly come up on time, so we'll have to wrap up our uh, our discussion here. But uh, yeah, it's been really fantastic to have uh, you all here today um, to learn more about the work that each of you are doing and, and also to hear your perspectives on you know how far computer vision research has come over the last decade or so and, and also still how far it has to go. I yeah, I hope that you've enjoyed participating in this discussion. Um, thanks again for, for joining us. And uh, we'll say goodbye there. Thank you. Thank you, Daniela, for organizing. Thank you very much. Thank you.